Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode number 150 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyoutsuka.com. My purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. And given the thousands of ADHD women that I have had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something, not one. And our guest today is certainly no exception. This woman is a powerhouse. I had the privilege of meeting her in my program, Your ADHD Brain is A-OK. I think she was part of our second cohort, where she literally set our world on fire. Early on in the program, she decided that she was interested in activism. And literally, I think it was the next Sunday or maybe the Sunday after that, I was watching our local news, and there she was, not just participating in a rally in support of Asian Americans, but no, 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 leading it. And that was only the beginning. This woman does nothing halfway. She doesn't even do it full way. She goes way beyond that. So for all of these reasons, I am just delighted to introduce you to Emerald May Rubio. Emerald is an associate marriage and family therapist who is passionate about serving children, adolescents, adults, and their families to promote healing from physical, emotional, sexual, intergenerational, and racial traumas. With 17 years serving populations with varying neurodiverse challenges, developmental delays, and mental health needs with complex trauma, Emerald is dedicated to empowering others and journeying alongside them as they create a purposeful life that is meaningful for them. She knows special needs, autism, sensory processing disorder, learning disabilities, and of course, ADHD. She knows mental health, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, PTSD. But I think her real love, which she's been focused on for the last five years, is working with marginalized communities with complex trauma, such as poverty, substance abuse, domestic violence, sexual trauma, oppression through immigration policies, incarceration, etc. 
Additionally, Emerald has experience supporting clients in navigating their gender identity and sexual orientation so that they are empowered to show up unapologetically as they are. Emerald is also a wife, mother, PTA president, school counselor, community leader, and activist for social justice issues. She is also a resilient survivor of decades of physical, emotional, sexual, and intergenerational trauma from childhood to early adulthood, who wears her trauma scars proudly. Emerald embodies such gratitude in her lived experiences as it has led her to her purpose of helping others heal. We always talk about our best purposes, give meaning to our past. So Emerald, welcome. Did I get all that right? Yes, you did. Thank you so much, Tracy, for having me. Oh my gosh, I am just honored. So Emerald, you definitely don't take the easy way out, do you? You're all about the grit and heading right into any challenge that calls to you. I always tell people I learn things the hard way. <laughs> I guess it's, I'm a hands-on learner. I don't take the easy way out, and I've always been that way. I love it. So before we get into the real nitty-gritty of why we've got you here today, can we talk about your ADHD diagnosis first? Yes. So when did that happen? Was it in childhood, adulthood? No, actually, I was 21 when I was officially diagnosed, and I had been struggling with academically since the fifth grade, but because of all the traumas that I experienced, nobody caught it. So, you know, I remember in elementary school, I was excelling, and then all of a sudden in middle school, it started to slip from Bs, Cs, Ds, and then in high school, all the way to 1.83 GPA. I didn't even know that I was going to graduate until the day that I got my cap and gown and they told us that we were able to walk. So I just, I had this pattern of taking four to five classes, right? Like you think you're so confident. Oh yeah, I can take four to five classes. And then I'd end up dropping it to one to two by the end of the quarter. And so my husband is the one that actually encouraged me. He was diagnosed as a teenager. And so he said, you know, why don't you look into it to see if medication would help me? And lo and behold, it did because I knew that I was smart because I, I excelled in other ways. Like when it came to presentations, group projects, classroom participation, I love to talk. And I'm just <laughs> like a super vigorous note taker. It's, it's, it's insane. Um, but that's how I, I learned. Right. But for some reason, I just, I felt like I struggled so much when it became to reading long chapters or doing homework and, you know, doing to these 10, 15, 20 page papers were just always so hard for me. So Yeah, that I didn't until I was 21. So you were officially diagnosed at 21. Was your situation the typical situation where you're diagnosed, they write you a prescription for medication and that's it? So they didn't even think that I had it. And I I noticed that my experience was very similar to my AOK sisters where, you know, they want to treat you for depression or anxiety. And Mm. they didn't believe me that I had it. And so it, it took a long time. I, I literally had to fight for this diagnosis to prove that I had it. And even now, you know, when I had my therapist at Kaiser, they just, they didn't put enough time and attention to that. I actually had to tell her, do you, you know, and I told her how I was struggling with them. Then I asked her, do you think I have it? And she's like, oh yeah, you have it. But for whatever reason, for the year and a half that I was with her, she didn't see the signs. So it wasn't until you asked about it. That right. all of a sudden it kind of connected in her brain. Yes. So when you tried medication, how old were you? Um, they started me off at Ritalin at age 21. 
And so I was taking that on and off. I was very inconsistent with it, depending on what kind of insurance that I had. And I didn't really like that medication. It just, it gave me a lot of anxiety. And it wasn't until, you know, I was connected with other ADHD, um, ADHDers and they had said like, no, you're not supposed to be feeling anxiety with it. And so when I explored Adderall, they said that would be the next thing to try. It, it worked wonders for me. I, I don't feel the anxiety. I just feel this sense of calm and like, wow, I can actually think about what I need to do in my day and figure out what the priorities are. And so uh, I didn't have that medication change until last year in August. Oh my gosh, really? So it was that recent? Yes. And that's the thing, man. When medication works for you, it can literally be life-changing. And, and, I, and I only know that because it worked for me literally one time. And I'm so grateful for that one time because now I know when, you know, ADHD people tell me, oh, medication is life-changing, I get it. I totally get it. It's like the sky opens up, right? And everything is calm and organized in your brain. Right. And then I just go and wonder, wow, is this how, is this how <laughs> neurotypical people function? Oh my gosh. You can get up and figure out what you need to do in a day and actually get it done. What? (laughs) I know, really. It's so unfair, isn't it? So once you knew it was ADHD and you had the benefit of hindsight, what are some of the symptoms that you always wondered about, but now you totally recognize them as, duh, that was clearly ADHD? Oh, my goodness. I, you know, and it wasn't until I joined your class when I really looked back at my childhood and my teen years, it became just so clear to me why it was so hard to figure out what homework needed to be done. And then, you know, to compile it with five or six different classes, it made so much sense why I performed so poorly in my classes, especially with math. It made sense why it was so hard to start or to complete assignments. Like I was just that quiet girl daydreaming about books and places that I'd rather be. And I think that because of all the trauma that I faced, you know, growing up in an abusive household and experienced sexual abuse for five years under my home and, you know, just the lack of guidance, there wasn't clear guidance on how to succeed in school, how to succeed in life. And so I I felt like I was just on my own. And because I, you know, just battled with so much insecurities, I really couldn't see why I was struggling so much. Right. And so because I was that was kind of the setting for my house, for my home. So when I was at school, I was dissociating and then daydreaming. And so, you know, if I'm dissociating and daydreaming during class, then what's going to happen when I go home and have to sit down to do the homework that I don't understand? And it was just it was so overwhelming. So everything always just seemed like it was just a big mountain that was too overwhelming to even try. So I didn't. You know, what's so interesting too, is you mentioned earlier that, and I hear this from ADHD women all the time, I knew I was smart and it doesn't make sense. How can I be this smart in these areas? And then I'm struggling so much in these other areas. So when you finally were diagnosed, was that a big aha? Okay. Yeah, I was right. I am smart and this is why I'm struggling. It was, but you know what? I was in such denial. I was in such denial. I mean, really, it was taking your class that really helped me to own and embrace it. Because prior to that, and 
this is just so crazy to me. I thought, oh, I don't have ADHD. This is just some school diagnosis. This is just something that I struggle with in school, right? And so when I left school and I was done and I was, I kept wondering like, well, well, then why am I still struggling? Why do I hate administrative tasks so much? Why do I still, you know, I'm so forgetful when it comes to like my household duties or my mommy duties and pickups and drop-offs. And it's just, you know, so then I would get into this like habit of beating myself up. So it wasn't until that I actually accepted it and embraced it. That's what was so, you know, that shifted it for me because I think because I lived in denial so much um, and I didn't embrace it, it just, it took me so long to do the things that I wanted to do. Like, for example, it took me six years to complete a community college degree, which usually takes two years, right? And I had, I I would get so overwhelmed and I would, you know, start school, come back to school, withdraw from school. So I didn't even complete all of my schooling because I had to transfer to San Jose State and then to a graduate program. And in the graduate program, it took me five years to complete, but it was just all the stopping, the withdrawing, the failing, the coming back and juggling mom life, therapist life, you know, being in a relationship. And, you know, with ADHD years, you're just, you're so prone to addictions because it's just so hard to deal. And so I was, I was, I, when I look at myself, I was just such a high functioning addict. And I did, I used drugs and alcohol, people, sex and food to kind of cope with the realities of life. And so, yeah, it's even into my 20s, it was so hard in my 30s. So it really was, you know, your course that really helped me to shift how I how I move around in life. Oh, because it uncovered just how brilliant you really are, right? All we talk about with ADHD, not we, but the medical community generally is all of our weaknesses. But there's no thought around, well, geez, if we're weak in this area, it, it, you know, there's an opposing strength. And so I just remember seeing you literally like a butterfly just blossom because all of a sudden you realized this is what I should be focusing on because I am friggin' brilliant at it. I mean, you just like you, you, it's like you ripped a veil. I was just walking around so insecure and beating myself up and saying, oh my gosh, I'm such a hot mess mom. Oh my gosh, I just suck at notes because so maybe I just, I'm not cut out to be a therapist, right? Oh my gosh, I'm such a bad wife because I'm so messy and <laughs> all these things. So it was just, it really helped to to kind of focus on, well, what are the good parts of ADHD and not, you know, look at my, kind of focus on my challenges. Absolutely. Okay. So let's talk about your brilliance. I know that your interest is all around the intersectionality of complex trauma and ADHD for the BIPOC community. First of all, can you tell us, when you use the term complex trauma, what are you talking about? I mean, complex trauma can mean so many things because it's very rarely that people experience just one type of trauma, right? So if you look at myself, for example, I didn't, I didn't experience just one trauma. It wasn't a one-time thing. It was a whole childhood and teens of, you know, filled with all the, the physical, emotional, sexual abuse. And then on top of that, you know, you look at the racial traumas that are going on in the world right now, right? All the attacks that are happening within the Asian community. Uh, you look at all of the barriers that people with ADHD struggle with and how they have to navigate the school systems and how hard it is. And it's not meant for us that they don't create schools that 
aren't mindful of our learning styles or what we need. And so there's just all these traumas, you know, compounded traumas. So I say complex traumas. Okay. So when you use the term complex, you're talking about compounded, just yes. exactly what you were just saying. I mean, if you're born into poverty and your parents have substance abuse and there's domestic violence in your family and you're, yeah, I can totally see what you're saying here. So in your experience, how does culture play a role in individuals being able to receive or not receive an ADHD diagnosis that they even know about it? I mean, well, you have to look at how is mental health services even perceived, right? Because it's very westernized here in the United States. So if you look at that from it was built and created for white-bodied human beings, right? And then how is it looked like from a lens for communities of color? So whether you're Black, Indigenous, people of color, Asian, Latin, however you identify, how do we, how do we view mental health? And usually for, you know, communities of color, we look to family, spiritual, religious, or even community support. So mental health is not, you know, oh, the first thing that we think about when we want to get help. And then on top of that, it's just the lack of education that's out there on navigating how do we navigate these systems and how what is the road to proper diagnosis? These are not conversations that are had within communities of color. So there's just a lack of awareness on what ADHD is, what, you know, what are the different mental health struggles, right? Is there a denial around it? It's kind of like, oh, just suck it up. I don't want to make a blanket statement. Like for some there, you know, if, I, if I'm just speaking from, you know, the Filipino community, mm -hmm. it's be strong, push mm. forward, suck yeah. it up. That yep. is not a priority. If you have a roof over your head, clothes on your back, food on the table, that is suffice. So mental health is not even seen as a priority or, you know, something that's part of our day-to-day -day language. So if it's not part of your language, then how do you know how to get that type of support? But the other part is like outward behaviors might be seen as misbehaving. Oh, they're just misbehaving. They're going to grow out of it, right? So there's just lack of empathy on what those struggles are, or on the flip side, you know, as an Asian individual, the model minority, the stereotype. So that becomes a barrier because, oh, because you're Asian, you should be excelling in school. And so there's a lot of people that fall through the cracks because we're supposed to be seen as the one that are excelling academically or in our workspaces. And so we typically don't get the help that we need. So what happens when you have complex trauma and ADHD, because the symptoms of ADHD are pretty similar to the symptoms of not just complex trauma, any kind of trauma, right? They can be. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot of overlap, but you, when someone is experiencing complex trauma and ADHD, you have to look at the whole picture. You know, you have to look at, well, what is their family history? What is their trauma history? And don't just look at the ACE score because the ACE score, so that's... Can you explain uh, that, ACEs? Yes. So, you know, it's 10 questions and they they assess whether, you know, how much trauma that you have experienced. So, but it's limited to physical, emotional, sexual trauma, incarcerations and drugs and alcohol. It doesn't take into consideration other traumas like racial traumas, intergenerational traumas, or, you know, if there's 
difficulties around housing or lack of support and resources. So you have to look at different types of trauma. You'd have to look at their cultural considerations like, well, what's their, what, is there an immigration experience, a culturation experience, or did they have to come over here and assimilate? And how did that look like growing up? You have to look at, you know, their social emotional. What are their relationships like? How do they cope and deal with everyday stressors? How did it, how did it show up in education or in the workspace? And, you know, for people who, who have menstruations, right, you have to look at that too, because as you have been harping so loud, and I love that you do, that hormones play such a huge role on how ADHD challenges show up. So, you know, are they in menstruation, perimenopause or menopause? And, you know, then looking at, well, where are they? Are they open? Are they willing? Are they ready to explore different treatment and support options? And, you know, what is their learning style? How you can't just give cookie cutter interventions to, to help this family or to help this person, you have to figure out, well, how do they best learn, right? And what are some of the unproductive ways that they do deal? Are they masking, code switching? Are they in survival mode? Why are they in survival? Um, you know, what, what brought them to be in that survival mode? You know, what are some things that impact on how they show up in the world? So you really have to look at the whole picture and not just, oh, hey, let me look at the ADHD symptoms, <laughs> right? You have to look at everything. So if you have a client who has both ADHD and complex trauma, where do you start? I, you know, what I always say, you know, in, in my AOK program is please, you know, we want you to be successful. I'm worried about the amygdala popping off, you know, every time something gets difficult and, you know, you going into fight or flight. So I really want you to work with a good therapist to address the trauma first. I have had people get really upset at me about that, that that's none of your business and you shouldn't be telling people that. But I just know that, you know, I'm not competent to address it and to help them through it. So that's just what I do. But I want to know more about what you think when there is ADHD and complex trauma, what needs to happen first? I mean, so I think there's a misconception out there. I mean, you're not the only one that people think that you need to treat trauma first, then ADHD. But what I would like to do is I challenge that and, you know, shift to, well, what's impacting them most, right? Because if, if you have like a plethora of just different issues that you're facing, well, what is impacting them most? And for some, it might be the ADHD because of my ADHD challenges, I can't even get myself to clean my room. I can't even get myself to prioritize what I need to do in my day. So then I don't. So but then also we need to kind of look at, well, so if you look at, let's say myself, I'm going to put myself as an example because I don't want to generalize, right? So I'm experiencing racial traumas from all of the attacks that are happening within the Asian community. I'm experiencing sexual traumas because right now I'm going through my court case of fighting against my perpetrator. So that's an ongoing thing. These are things that are ongoing. They're not going to go away anytime soon. I don't know when the endpoint is going to be. So how is it that I can address those first before attacking my ADHD symptoms? So then I, what I try to do is I, you know, I, I'm very reflective. Well, how can I support this person with the different areas of their life at the same time rather than, okay, let's focus on this first thing and then this third, you know, then the next 
thing I I try to we'll see how we can work at different things at the same time. I mean, because we're as human beings, we're not going through things at this, you know, one thing at a time. There's a bunch of things that are impacting us all at the same time. And we somehow have to manage and go through life. So it's messy. I totally hear you. I think, though, that you are qualified to treat both trauma and ADHD at the same time, right? Yes. And so my fear is always, I do not want to do harm. That is, you know, kind of what I, what I guide everything I do by. And I'm also worried about if someone is in the throes of trauma, how does that affect other students? No, you bring up a really good point. I mean, something that I also am very mindful when I'm holding healing circles. So right now. Okay. You have to tell us what's a healing circle. Okay. So some people say group therapy, but I love to say healing circles. So in my healing circles, we don't sit on chairs and desks. It's very rigid. We sit on the floor because we are all collectively healing together and it levels out the playing field. It's not, oh, Emerald's the expert and here are my, you know, here are my clients. No, I don't. I am a fellow trauma warrior with you. I'm a survivor with you and we are collectively healing together. So when I'm putting together these healing circles, so whether that's for mothers or sexual trauma survivors, right? I do take into account, well, where are they on their healing process? How do they connect with other group members? Um, You know, because I do have to look for the emotional safety of other people that are coming in because everyone is dealing with trauma. So it's not going to help if you are reacting out of your trauma. And let's say you're going to take it out on another person, then it just creates emotional unsafety. So that is something that I take into account. So for people that, you know, maybe are early on their healing journeys or they're just not quite, they're still developing the skill on how to interact more safely with other people or, right? So then I'll I'll say, well, maybe, maybe we focus on individual work first and then, you know, as the group goes on, then maybe we can reintroduce you into another round of healing circles as it comes up. So do you find that when you have trauma and ADHD, I'm asking your opinion, does it seem like your clients do better in a group, in a healing circle than individually, or does it really just depend on the person? And the reason I ask you that is because we both know how, you know, how debilitating shame can be. And so when you're around other people that are going through what you're going through, like the shame dissipates. It's kind of like our AOK, right? Program, just seeing other people that are just like you and realizing, oh my God, they're so lovely and brilliant and have so much to add to the world. So because you're part of that and every other person is just like that, you suddenly realize that, wait, I'm just like that. I'm one of them. Do you experience that as well with the trauma and the ADHD? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's for most things, right? So I'm such a huge advocate for healing in community. So if we even look at the racial traumas that are going on right now, we don't deal with it on our own. But knowing that we have other people that can relate we heal together in community, just like you did with the AOK and the agency that, you know, once you were, oh my gosh, once we were surrounded by other ADHD unicorns, then you didn't feel like, oh my gosh, so I'm just not a freak with a bunch of sparkles, but I am I am just like, yes, I'm an ADHD unicorn and I'm sparkling and I'm not going to hide my sparkles any longer. 
And so, you know, for people, that's why when I decided to go in private practice, I didn't focus on individual work. I pushed those healing circles hard because I am a huge believer of healing within community with, of other people. Because even when you're not sharing, if you're not talking in the group, listening to other people's experiences can be so, so validating. And you learn so much by hearing from other people. I love that. And I, I totally agree. Certainly from where I sit, that is what I have noticed the most. I mean, when I first started AOK, we didn't even have any kind of um, component where, I mean, yeah, there was a Facebook group, but, you know, and you can build community that way, but there's something about everybody, you know, coming together and being able to chat and just seeing and meeting other women you know, I don't do them in person, but online, it's just amazing how much of a connection you can build with others. So I, I can only imagine if there's not only ADHD, but you've also are going through, you know, resolving complex trauma or not resolving. I don't know that you ever resolve it, right? You address it and you learn how to, well, in your case, make it work for you. Right. I mean, for some traumas, it's nothing, it's not something, oh, I'm just going to get over this trauma. It's just something that you learn to live with. And, you know, if you can tap into those inner strengths, well, what has this trauma taught me? How can I tap into my resilience? Or how can I make this part of my purpose and my meaning in life? So I've definitely seen that, you know, among those ADHDers. I, I love it when I see people become ADHD coaches. For me, my passion lies with my sexual trauma survivors and my people that, you know, people of color with complex trauma. And I, I just, you know, I, I use my experiences to, to empower other people rather than live in the shame. Absolutely. It's all about getting out of the, getting into the light, right? Right. So what do you think about talk therapy versus somatic therapies? So you know me. <laughs> I am such a creative therapist, so I love to honor all the different learning styles. And I don't think that talk therapy alone is the end-all be-all. So even when I introduce people, um, let's say they want to be a become a client of mine, I do share. I'm very experiential, somatic, and hands-on. So within my work, Sometimes we are slamming slam bags. We are expressing our rage through pounding the crap out of these slam bags, right? Or let's say we are drawing art. Maybe it's too hard to talk about it. It's too painful to talk about it. Okay, let's draw out what our experiences are. Maybe it is too frightening to really own your story. I've never said this story out loud, so it feels safer to write it out first and then to share it within a group or within the person that you're working with. So I like to use all sorts of different ways. I am such, I would say I'm, I'm experiential, I'm somatic, I use a lot of expressive arts, but I really take into the account of looking at all the puzzle pieces of someone's life so that I can really understand who they are. And sometimes talk therapy alone is not going to, to get that. Explain the difference between somatic and experiential. Is that how you say it? Experiential? Yes. Yeah. So experiential is, it could be games, it could be activities. So let's say, okay, for example, I, you know, when I was holding my survivor group, I could have easily said, 
oh, let's talk about fear or let's talk about anger or let's talk about a time that you felt sad, right? But instead, I decided to do an activity. And so I would have them stand at one side of the, you know, they would sit on stand on one side of the grass and I was on the other side. And I would just little by little, you know, take a step forward if you have ever felt confusion about why you experience such things. Take a step forward if you have ever felt anger or rage that this happened to you. Take a step forward if you have ever felt so alone, you didn't know who to turn to, right? And so using that body movement, using activities to really you know, solidify their experiences. And so in doing that, you're seeing your fellow trauma warriors stand next to you and you're, you're all taking that step forward. And that's just, you know, that's so powerful in a different way than just talking about it. I can completely see that. So then explain what you mean when you say somatic therapies. So somatic is, it is more body-based approaches. And so um, some somatic approaches that I do, let's say that I am helping them to become present in their bodies, right? And so sometimes it is you know, lying on the mats and putting on some sounding bath music and guiding them to humming so that they can feel the vibrations through their body and really being in their body. Because as survivors, sometimes you're so used to dissociating, masking and numbing that it does you don't even know what it feels like to be in your body. So somatic is really getting that comfort and feeling safe of being in your body because so much of the time people are either worrying about whatever happened in the, you know, in the past or, you know, really living there or, you know, and some people might say they're living in that victim mentality and they're just living in the past. And for others, they're just so future focused, always planning, planning, planning. And so never very rarely in the present moment, just like right now and right now and right now being in your, in the present moment, second by second. And so using body-based approaches for them to be in that moment is so empowering. That's great. So I know that um, the intersectionality of complex trauma and ADHD for the BIPOC community is really important to you. Before I go into just some general questions, is there anything else more that you'd like to say? Yeah, I think that, you know, I, I did want to address some of the barriers that people face. So and it is, it's just calling things out as they are, because without calling things out as they are and acknowledging that for them, a lot of people of color, they feel like, you know, it's a lot of over explaining. And that's just so mentally exhausting to have to be the one that's educating and explaining versus really sitting in that healing process. So, you know, some of that stems from just the racial disparities among providers in the mental health field. There's just not enough. We need we need more people of color. We need more diverse and culturally responsive providers. So therapists out there, if you think you want to get into it, get into it. <laughs> you know, and then also just the cultural and language barriers, right? Navigating the system from intake to assessments to treatment. I mean, think about what that's like for someone where English is not their first language. And then you have this stack of intake papers. Oh my goodness, that is just so intimidating. But then also we find that we are, you know, we feel wrong or pathologized for the things that are just understandable human responses, right? We're said, oh, you're depressed. Oh, you have PTSD. Oh, you are 
so oppositional. You have oppositional defiant disorder. But then if you look at the experiences that we have, these, you know, oppressions and traumas like systemic racism, hate crimes, distrust of law officials, or being separated from your family because they've been deported, or if you have family overseas, I mean, wouldn't you understand that maybe those are very understandable circumstances for one to feel sad or one to feel distrusting or have that hypervigilance. But then also there's just a misdiagnosis. There's a lot of misdiagnosis because of cultural black bias. So I've noticed that, you know, black and brown communities, they might jump to, oh, this is oppositional divine disorder versus, well, could it be trauma and ADHD? You know, and then when we do seek care, there's a lot of gaslighting or exhaustion from having to over explain our experiences. And then there's limited access and roadblocks to treatment. And, you know, don't even get me started on people who are undocumented or impoverished communities. They just have limited access to resources. So it's just on top of that, it's just a fight to get the diagnosis. Let's say that you become more empowered and aware of how the system works. It's a, once we get there, it's such a fight. Like women are, you know, oh, this is an ADHD, this is depression or anxiety, right? Not willing to see that maybe emotional dysregulation is part of the ADHD diagnosis. It's still not in the DSM. So I wanted to call that out. And because of, you know, those barriers, like I, I just, I approach things so differently when I'm guiding people who are navigating life with complex trauma and ADHD, because this is just for some of their circumstances, this is part of their life. So I'm very strength-based and I tap into their natural strengths and help them to rediscover new strengths. Is it the resilience? Is it the perseverance? Is it, oh my goodness, you have a long lineage of ancestral strength, you know, blood running through your veins and the breath into your lungs. Like how can I tap into these strengths? And it's just being, culturally responsive, really taking notice of all the different components of their culture and being trauma-informed and having a collectivist framework and, you know, having that systems approach. How can I empower them within their communities? They're not, you know, rather than looking at them, oh, this is an individual human being, but this is an individual human being who is operating within so many different systems. So how can I empower them within those systems, right? And being experiential and somatic and especially with ADHDers, action-focused. Oh, my goodness. So just sitting down and processing it is not going to work. You know, they say, "I Emerald, I don't even know what to do next. So then, okay, I need to be more direct and action-focused because me processing how tough ADHD is is not going to help. So I'm very collaborative in the way that that I do my work when I'm helping people that are struggling with both. Well, and I mean, we hear all the stories every day, um, certainly like in our big Facebook group and then, you know, with our AOK women and just women in general with ADHD, what a fight it is to get diagnosed when you have every privilege. I cannot even imagine what it's like um, for marginalized communities to get that diagnosis. Okay. That was all just so, so brilliant. Um, Emerald. So what is it about you and your ADHD that makes you so good at this job? Because I can just tell how good you are. I know how good you are. Oh my goodness. I, and I think I didn't realize that these were ADHD traits 
until you told me, until you like shine this light on it. So I just thought that this was normal. Like, oh, isn't everyone like this? And so, you know, it's just this drivenness. I just, I can't, I won't allow myself to give up. I am so driven and I will not stop until I hit that goal. And it's just, it's so reinforcing to get that, right? It's that fearlessness and this adventurous side that, you know, just because something is not there doesn't mean that it can't be created. And so I'm just a very out of the box thinker. So, you know, when I look at my schooling leading up to becoming this authentic therapist, I was not taught on how to serve people of color. I mean, if you look at the books that I was given, I was taught all these white therapists like Freud and all and Ellis oh, and gosh. Alder <laughs> and you know, I'm like, where are the people of color? And so I had to scrap a lot of the things that I, I had to unlearn a lot of the things and really get in tune and in touch with my community. Well, what is it that they're going through and what is it that I that they need? Because westernized way of doing things is not always the best way when I'm serving, you know, the BIPOC community. So I had to be very creative and very out of the box. And I think that I have that social intuitiveness. I'm just, I'm such a huge empath. Oh my goodness. And so that can be a blessing and a curse because then I feel, I feel things so much more deeply and intensely, which can be, it serves me well as a therapist. But then when I'm looking at you know, when I think, when I reflect on all the things that are going on in the world, I, I do, I feel so much pain from it. How do you, I always wonder about that, especially with someone like you that does the kind of therapy that you do and who your clients tend to be. How do you not just get all chewed up inside? I live in hope. So even when someone is coming to me and they're just in such a dark spot, you know, when I see them, I see like sunbeams coming out of their body and I'm like, oh, I can't wait to like untap that and help them to see what I see. Right. And so I just get so excited. So even when they're at their rock bottom, even though they're struggling, I'm already seeing the light and I'm just collectively like we're just standing together and we are journeying along each other so I can take them there. And so I try to live in hope as much as possible when I'm helping people. I think what impacts me most is not when I'm doing the work, is when I'm just Emerald. I'm just the mom. I'm a woman out in the community. And then that's when I think those things are much harder for me to sit with, dealing with that. That was beautiful, Emerald. So what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? Oh my goodness. I It's radical acceptance and embracing all that you are. So not just the highlights and what you think are the, you know, the good things. It's everything. Shifting how you look at your circumstances. So I could have, I have every reason to feel sorry for myself. Like my A score is nine out of 10. So, you know, I've endured so many different traumas. I battled drug and alcohol addictions. I've had ADHD challenges, racial traumas. And, but I, I could sit and mope and feel sorry for myself, but instead I choose to see myself as this gem. You know, you look at diamonds. Well, your name through- is perfect. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they, they go through so much pressure and molding. And then, you know, when they pers- persevere through such a traumatic upbringing and school systems that are not built to support neurodivergent people like myself or having to conquer sobriety, you know, I'm, I hit like, 
Oh my God. Yeah. Three years and two months sober. <laughs> so I just, you know, making efforts towards systemic change. And I just, I use my story and my experiences to empower others and help others heal. And so it is, you know, re, reshifting how you look at your story and creating a new one that it, this is not the end all be all you can, oh my gosh, allow yourself to dream again. You know, what kind of life do you feel like you deserve and how can we get there? And so it is just owning it. Like you don't have to feel sorry for yourself. You don't have to, you know, there, you have the power to, to do it different every day. Well, and I think too, having gone through all of these things, you then really understand your client, right? Rather than someone who, oh yeah, you've read about this in a book. You've read about what it means, you know, to have an addiction. I mean, I I just, my whole thing is if I'm going to hire somebody, I'm going to hire somebody who's been through what I've been through because they get it. Yeah. And most of my clients do. So I, I put that in my bio. I don't hide that. They know going in what I've been through and that's why they choose me or they'll say, you know, yeah, I, I want a therapist who is a fellow survivor. I want a therapist who knows what it's like to be in a Filipino household. I, or I want a therapist who has ADHD because I'm tired of being dismissed for my experiences. Yeah. So Last question, Emerald. Well, second to last. What is your number one ADHD workaround? Do you have one? Oh my goodness. It's being in community. You already know that I am the wildest extrovert ever. So being community with other ADHD unicorns, because prior to joining AOK and, you know, just, I, I didn't have any friends that had ADHD. So I felt so alone. And for so long, I just, I felt stupid. I felt maybe there's something wrong with me. And then so when I was able to be in community with, you know, like Lola, Paloma, Kelsey, (laughs) Tracy, Isabel, you know, all these wonderful people, I was able to like see myself. And, you know, it's not just, it's not just being in community, like, cause then it just gives you so much. You get accountability, you get body doubling, you get support and you get unconditional love. People that just get you, accept you and, just love on you. And that's, that's been my number one ADHD workaround for me. Oh gosh, you make me smile. So Emerald, are you working on something that you want to tell us about? Oh my goodness. What am I, what am I, Tracy, what am I never not working on? I don't even know what you're going to say because I'm sure it's something I don't, I know nothing about. I mean, so, right. I don't know if I uh, have told you, but I, I jumped into private practice starting in June because I wanted to serve, you know, really put my focus for complex trauma in the BIPOC community. So I do that um, in the evenings and sometimes on the weekends at Tri Healing. That's where I have my, you know, I have my private practice group that I, that I'm part of. But then also I have been doing so many speaking engagements. Like today, there was a power diversity conference and I did it on embracing cultural identity to create a place of belonging at the in the workspace. Or, you know, in the beginning of the month, it was embracing your scars to rise up in resilience, you know, within the Filipino community. So I am just, you know, working to get myself out there to really utilize the gifts that I have. So whether that's 
doing healing work, therapy, healing circles, or whether that's being a speaker. My goal is to become a national speaker. Right now, I'm just, you know, doing it in California and then virtually um, across this, you know, in the United States, but it would be a dream to do that. But also something that I am in the works. So I have such a passion for taking these legal steps for trauma survivors out there. Right now in California, there is a bill that I'm trying to push for. I want to remove time constraints so that survivors of sexual trauma, so whether you are a child or whether you're an adult, I want those time constraints to be removed so then that way they are able to get the legal justice that they deserve when they are ready to take those steps. That is amazing, Emerald. Oh my gosh. I can't wait to see what you're going to do. So you need to tell people where they can find you, if they want to know more about you, what you're doing, that they can follow you, all of that. Tell us where. Oh yes. So on Instagram, my handle is healwithemerald. So you can find me there. And then I have an email, erubio at tryhealing.com. Tell me the email again. Erubio at tryhealing, T-R-I-H-E-A-L-I-N-G.com. Okay. So on Instagram, it's Heal with Emerald. And then your email is erubio at tryhealing.com. Yes. Emerald, you are such a delight. You're such a powerhouse. Thank you so much for uh, spending time with us here today. Truly. Oh, it was such, I, I have been, this is a dream come true. I have been wanting to (laughs) get on the podcast with you. So it's been so exciting because I know that I've been harping so much. There needs to be more diversity. We need to hear different stories. And so I really wanted to bring this one to light. And I'm so grateful that you did. Thank you again, Emerald. You're welcome. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Emerald, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. And you know what? Your reviews really help in that regard. One more thing, if you have a comment, a guest you'd like me to interview, or a topic idea for this podcast, you can go to my website at tracyoutsuka.com and leave me an audio or written message. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.